I get the feeling that uh, many of us are tired. And I don't think that's anything uh, to be ashamed of. Though from the outside it might not look like much is going on, I do feel that this is a rigorous practice that we're undertaking. This cultivation of uh, our capacity to open to the nature of this embodied experience that we call our life. This cultivation is, is not easy because so much of our habitual tendencies distract us really from the way things really are and lead us to a kind of sometimes unconscious, unconscious sense that we solve problems by Just finding something that's pleasing. And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it is a wise thing to do. It sets up a particular kind of circumstance uh, in Buddhist language called birth, taking birth. Taking birth in that which we prefer, that which we like, that which we become. There's nothing wrong with that. It is as it is. It's part of nature. But we need to accept the consequences. And when we take birth, the consequence is old age, sickness, and death. Loss. Sense of despair. Fear. Fear of losing what we cherish. I mean, once I remember being on a train and uh, as a Buddhist monk and sitting, I think, across the row from young mother and her child and the child was really kicking up a fuss and crying and screaming. Very difficult situation for mom, for the child, for everybody. And you could see that she was faced with a very difficult situation. This, this piercing sound, which wasn't really conducive for the peacefulness of the car or her. The child was obviously suffering. One could watch her desperately trying to do something that would uh, fix the situation. The child was unhappy about something. I can't remember what it was. It wanted something or it didn't want something. I'm not sure. But she reached quickly into, at one point, she reached in a frantic way into her handbag and got out some keys and started jangling them, glittering keys. And the uh, child's mind being what it was, it, it, it forgot what it was so upset about, it was attracted to, to that new, interesting, stimulating 
And uh, in America, we might say, good call. I mean, you know. <laughs> you know. I mean, it was. It was skillful. It, it dealt with a very difficult situation. And uh, he was relieved, and the child was diverted, and I could carry on with my meditation. But I did reflect on that, on that uh, even ancient tendency that we might have to solve dukkha, to solve the experience of disease, the experience of pain, by moving on to something interesting, to something fascinating. Moving away from the painful toward the interesting. And I'm not judging what uh, what happened on that situation. It probably was the right thing. But I think I think on this retreat, because our our, our options for for moving away are, are quite limited, or let's put it this way: there's still infinite ways to move away in terms of. But it's easier to to recognize what we're doing in a circumstance where there is, is silence and that our own thoughts are much more likely to be heard. In a circumstance where there is the guideline, the container of sitting periods, of walking periods, the container of learning how to take up a humble practice, a practice of steadying the mind. And then, and then having to realize how difficult that is, how much the mind is sabotaged sometimes from within to keep it from actually simply just being with how it is. It's so habitually the, the mind moves and wanders, darting here, darting there, looking for something stimulating or pleasing or worrisome. And I think uh, this effort to, to witness this tendency, this willingness to acknowledge it, is, is, it requires a lot of effort. And especially today, as we've been uh, reflecting more on, on what it's like to consciously, consciously turn to and make space for the difficult. For many of us, that might be a revolution in our ancient, habitual way of, of maneuvering. That immediately moves away, maybe from the difficult. But to actually have this notion, this, this dharmic notion, that it's a nobling truth, something that ennobles the spirit, when there is the willingness, one, to acknowledge there is that which is difficult, there is that which is painful, there is that which is uneasy, there is that which is sorrowful and sad and despairing. This ennobling truth that says that needs to be turned to so that it can be understood, needs to be felt, needs to be experienced fully. And that's not easy. 
We've had the opportunity today to begin our, our balancing and dancing between, number one, our cultivation of some sense of ease, some sense of steadiness in the moment, balancing that activity which we've called uh, samatha practice, gathering, collecting our attention in the body, in the breath, in the sound, in a thought of welcoming the moment, balancing that which, with inquiry. Because the, the peaceful states, as nice as they are for those of us who've uh, experienced them, the peaceful states in and of themselves aren't finally liberating. They're peaceful, they're skillful, they can be joyful, but they're still fabricated. They're built, they're compounded, they depend on certain conditions being in place. Like recently when we led a retreat on Dartmoor, we, we, had, uh, we had one day that was a memorable day because uh, in the morning we had an unexpected uh, a work crew arrive right next door with a, some kind of awesome machine. I never actually got a look at it, but I, I heard this incredible grinding, shaking. It was some kind of concrete mixer, big. It was a day, I can't remember what else happened, but it was a day where there was a, huh? Yeah, we blew the electricity out in the house. <laughs> Cook went, got a bit frantic. Loud noises everywhere. And for those who had uh, taken refuge in, in, the, in the pleasing abiding, I'm sure got quite a challenge on that particular day. Hmm? Oh, right, yeah, there was another one. We were all kind of just moving into, finally, near the ending of the day, things had quietened down. We were just kind of sitting there, and in this particular house, you could hear somebody who hadn't come to the sitting creeping up the stairs. You could hear them going into the toilet, opening the door, walking across the floor, sitting down, urinating as it was (laughs) echoing through the whole house turning on the shower as it vibrated. It's powerful. I think we might have blown the electricity soon after that. But it was, it was, I think Kuan Yin had a hand in there because it was, it was very important. My tendency, my character, the way my, I'm built, is when I first started meditation, I got into enjoying peaceful states. I'm, I'm an addictive type of personality. I, I like nice things. And uh, like feeling good. I mean, I, I tried to go into the ice cream jhana, but... <laughs> Everything I would do, I would do it in an excess way. The problem with the ice cream, John, is it leads to the stomach ache hell. <laughs> but then in, in meditation, like a snapping turtle, I kind of snapped onto this, 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 uh, I got a hang of it, of kind of getting peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. Just lapping it up. 
and which was a certain amount of skill there. I mean, it's uh, an importance to have uh, that. But I couldn't understand why. I get to a certain point, and this is even after I'd ordained as a monk, and right as I start to get still, and the body sensations would get very flickering, and then the body, mind would seem to kind of unify, and then a, a kind of blue-gold nimitta would appear. And then as, as I held that kind of light and kind of got pulled into it, to the kind of thrill, <gasps> yeah, just getting pulled into stillness. And then, stunned if every time right then, <laughs> at first it was exciting, but right then an image would appear and it would be a stormy sea with ships, old ancient sailing ships. They'd be sinking. People would be drowning. I think for at first I got a bit interesting. Oh, maybe we got a past life recall going here. <laughs> maybe I was a captain in there, or the admiral, maybe. Or, but I didn't didn't see anybody in particular. It was just a stormy sea, ships drowning, people drowning, kind of climb, trying to climb onto wreckage, which was also going down too. Then it happened again and again and again. And then one day I got the message that it was, it's funny how the unconscious kind of can tell us something, or something can tell us something. I was really wanting those peaceful states to be nibbana. I wanted that to be the place where you go, and then one day you just crack it, boom, you get in there deep enough, and then, and then something snaps, or a big light goes on, or that's that. But to have this, this getting stiller, 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 almost right at the yes moment, which is the moment when we take birth. That's the moment when we say, this is good. This, this image of the sinking ship. And I realize now that that was telling me that even, even our peaceful states are, are also fragile. They're also part of the realm of, of dukkha. They're relatively skillful, But in and of themselves, they aren't the ending. They aren't the ending of suffering if one just attaches to them. Even though they are skillful, and they are skillful for us to learn to have a trusting that there's a sense of well-being possible inside ourselves. When we make that the goal and stop there, then the result is a painful result. Why did I get depressed after every retreat for a long time? Because of that. Get some skill at getting peaceful and get blown away when I open my mouth or somebody else opened their mouth. And that's why, the, and it's not that those states are wasted, so if we have that experience, it doesn't mean to say we need to waste that, but then we need to bring into our contemplation, yes, still enjoy the well-being, but bring into the contemplation, this is also stormy, it's also shaky, it's also dependent on there not being a concrete machine going in that particular time. It might be dependent on our nervous system being in pretty good shape. It might be dependent on many other factors. And to keep to reflecting that this is an impermanent state. And then to use, and this is what the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment, to use some of that composure then to notice, and this is what Vipassana is, to notice what is going on here. And when I look closely, even in the peaceful state, 
Sensation is flicker. Intention is flicker. Everything is still changing. And when one really reflects that something is changing, when one can really see directly, feel directly, be in contact with the fragile, changing, ephemeral nature of things, does it make sense then to demand that something that is changing doesn't change? Does that make sense? Is that respectful to life? The Buddha taught that actually the problem, there isn't a problem with any of the conditions. The problem is ignorance. The problem is this tendency to ignore the true nature of things, what he called avidya. It is through avidya, not really looking closely at the nature of things, that there's a tendency to take birth, to take something and assume there's a solid platform, to make take our stand on there. And if we take birth on something which then collapses, there's the feeling of falling, the feeling of death. So in Vipassana meditation, or in this reflective aspect of our training, we're looking at all the things that we tend to take as mine, to take as self. All the things we tend to take as what we are, what the Buddha called the five aggregates, five khandas form, what we've been looking at, the body, that's the first aggregate, the first thing that we tend to assume is mine, the body, and other forms. I mean, we can also assume that this is my house, my property, my family, my retreat, my retreat. Why would I have been upset at that concrete mixer except that didn't fit into my retreat? That particular form, caustic sound, or that shower upstairs. How can she do that on my retreat? Another time somebody could take a shower upstairs, how come that doesn't bother me? How come I can take a shower upstairs and it doesn't bother me? (laughs) concrete mixer minding its own business did that concrete mixer disturb me or did as Ajahn Chah would say did I go and disturb that concrete mixer he would say only the disturbed get disturbed So what's going on? If I had some idea of taking birth and, oh, I want this retreat to be really peaceful so people have blazing insights on this concrete mixer comes in. (coughs) Notice whether it's the form of our body, our situation, our work. Notice if there's a sense of taking birth, if there's resting on a sense of this is mine, this is me. Notice that the sense of death happens when that changes, when something changes in that. 
And yet, guess what? When in our meditation we actually start to notice, wait a minute, what is this body that I call me, mine, this healthy body or strong body or tall body, thin body? We actually start to make contact with, through our mindfulness, through our samatha, through our openness and our investigation, start actually to see. We start to notice this, this what's called characteristic of change. And that intellectually might seem so obvious. Oh gosh, it's so obvious. Here we go again. Everything's changing. Can't we get to something deep, <laughs> like emptiness? I want to hear about that. Well, when I was a student at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, I, my thesis topic, I was going to go back to medical school to America, but my thesis topic at Oxford was art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. That's like having as my topic the universe. <laughs> wonderful kind of high-minded sort of stuff. And I, then I, in the middle of that, when even in the midst of my high-minded uh, thesis, I noticed my life was still full of a lot of confusion. In the middle of that thesis, I got a leave of absence, had heard about Ajahn Chah and other monks in Thailand. So I went off to Thailand. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of mysticism and all kinds of wonderful things. And my first meeting with Ajahn Chah and he hears about my meditation, which he sort of laughed at. He even, he even got down on the floor barking and sniffing like a dog all over the place, giving a demonstration of how he thought I was meditating. <laughs> and he said, you can learn everything you need to know if you just really get to know your breath. If you really understand the breath, you understand everything. For someone who had such a wide sense of trying to understand everything, and at Oxford he's trying to come up with some kind of interesting theory on all these different chapters, actually it was quite a relief to have somebody make it very simple. What do we understand when we actually open to the nature of the breath? We actually see, we witness in breath. If we actually open to what is the nature of this as the breath coming in, we notice we can feel it changing every instant and then the in-breath dies. It's gone. Then the out-breath is born. It's flickering, it's shifting, then it dies. The in-breath is born changing every instant. This characteristic of change. If we see something changing, can that changing thing be a platform for ultimate satisfaction? If something's in a minute like this, but then the next second it's otherwise, it's different. That's why the second characteristic that one reflects on is called dukkha, something that's not reliable. It's this way and then it's that way. The in-breath is this way and then it's that way. Not only the in-breath, but the body, the heartbeat, the feelings in the form of the body. 
the form of the day, the light is this way, and it's cloudy, and then it's bright, and then it's hot, and then it's cooling, and it's getting more mellow. form of the earth is changing, the seasons are changing, this evening is the full moon, the moon waxes and then it wanes. There's wind and then there's stillness, this evening there's stillness. So in the realm of form, from the breath to the cellular level, to the planetary level, the galaxy's form is constantly in a process of shifting. And yet, does it make sense then to take form as a platform for saying, this is mine, this is me, this is my happiness? The Buddha, when he says it's dukkha, he's not saying that there's something wrong with it. If one grasps that something that inherently changes, expecting it to be something solid, something for me, to know who I am, then that taking birth then ensures that we're going to get disappointed and die because it shifts. And what is, we really see change. We really see that any moment is not reliable to stay put, that it it will become assured of becoming otherwise. Then the insight into anatta becomes obvious, what's called not-self. Does it make sense to own something? It's not just an intellectual notion of trying to convince ourselves that we don't have a self. We just get a headache. But does it make sense to think that I own something that is flickering and shifting and changing? Can we grasp it? Can we really control it? In our meditation, if in our presence of mind, one really starts to notice change in the breath, in feeling, in perception, in thoughts, in even moments of experience, these different aspects of our existence, from the most formal, the body, to the aspects of the mind, which are invisible to the flesh eye, but can be seen with the inner eye, feeling, perception, thinking, and moments of noticing. When we really start to to sense this changing nature. What happens? Well, then we have the opportunity to at least notice all these tendencies we have to climb on conditions and then be upset when they change. The image that always comes to my mind, a humorous image of, of what this situation is like, is, is a time when I uh, got invited to you know, a monastery in Wales that has an elephant, a temple elephant. I got invited to clean out the elephant's hut, the elephant's barn. This elephant uh, grew up in an elephant orphanage in Sri Lanka, and the guru in Wales visited, saw it, and said, I want that one. Somehow got permission to have this baby elephant sent to Wales. <laughs> one of the monks was put on a full-time job just looking after this elephant. It slept with the elephant until the elephant got too big and it used to roll over. <laughs> so then the, the monk, uh, Brother Peter, slept upstairs in the loft so he could still look down and she grew and grew and grew and got real big and was taught how to do blessings and was actually quite happy. 
But when I came to clean her barn, she was put outside in the yard, and I was up on a ladder, kind of cleaning, cleaning the barn, happy about my foundation on this ladder. And the next thing I know, the whole world is shaking. And I looked down, and there, that naughty elephant, she had her head in the door and had her trunk around the bottom of the ladder. And she was shaking that ladder. And to me, all these conditions that we climb onto, that we assume, we make this assumption of mind, assumption of solid, whether it's our body, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a thought, but we're not really recognizing the changing nature. It's not to hate that uh, elephant. He's a wonderful elephant. But to know that that's the nature of this this world is like it's always shaking, it's always shifting, it's always changing. And it's one thing to deny the reality of the world and then get upset when it changes. It's another thing to open our heart to the to the changing nature, true changing nature, to appreciate that. Not to be so worried that that changing nature is going to be a terrible thing when we actually start to recognize things changing actually start to sense all the suffering that comes from ownership, to sense the stress and to sense what happens when we relinquish and offer back to nature this body, these feelings, these thoughts, that in that letting go we start to notice a deeper spaciousness, deeper aspect of our being, which the Buddha calls the timeless, that which is the Amata Dhamma, that which doesn't die. But it's nice to think this theoretically, but the process, the process of realizing we've, we've built our house, that whole sense of who I am on something that's shaky, this process then of allowing what was karmically created to run its course is this process that is difficult, actually allowing the painful, the difficult to become conscious. And this aspect of the path is, 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 is challenging. It's, this willingness to be with, with the difficult is, is stretches us because it, in a sense we die who we thought we were, all the things that we thought we were, start to manifest as, as comes up into the heart thoughts of, oh gosh, I can't handle this anymore. Thoughts of really liking it. Thoughts of wanting to run away, this is terrible. If we build our house on that, then we do. We, we run away. Maybe that is the right thing for us. But then we've been... We've been carried by that thought as me. But what happens if we notice is sometimes when we sit there and just notice the thought, oh, I can't take it, I hate this. Notice that thought well up and then if we see that thought shifting and changing and, all, and notice another feeling a few minutes later or a few hours later, then the question comes up, well then who am I really? I hate it, I like it. This is good, this is horrible. I'm peaceful, I'm a wreck. (laughs) 
the Buddha's first disciple who had insight, deep insight, just had the insight that everything arises, ceases. Just that insight that we have with the breath, when the breath arises, there's an in-breath, and then that in-breath ceases. It becomes out-breath, and that out-breath begins, and then that ceases. To actually take that insight and to start to notice all of our moments are the same way, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. Very powerful. Even our fears, even our doubts, even our despairs arising and ceasing. such a deep desire to know who we are by attaching to some form, some thought, some feeling. And yet that very sense of wanting security brings us insecurity and collapses our vastness into some particular form. When we start to feel the limitations, feel the suffering of that, then there's the willingness to want to see that clearly. To allow the, the Holocaust, to allow the complete burning, to allow a sense of all these conditions to, to go their course. The conditions of fear, the conditions of doubt, the conditions of pain, the conditions of hope. We see them arise and cease, arise and cease. And more and more there's the sense of that which is the context, that which is the framework, that which is the ground can become more clear to us, that which is aware, that which is bright. So I encourage us all to to be patient. There is a there is a place in this practice for learning just to be patient. In Thailand it was called Oton. When we're actually patient, even with a difficult state, there's something in us that feels like we're dying, we're dying, and when we see that arise and cease, there's the opportunity to then see, God, that was just change. It wasn't really who I was. Yes, it died, but then there's something still here. That willingness to work with the difficult, but to find the right balance. And sometimes it might be too much for us. And then there's a a sense of, well, not just crushing through. Our our teacher, Ajahn Chah, said, you know, you don't pretend you have a ten-wheeler truck when you have a wheelbarrow. (laughs) You know, so sometimes you get a sense for how much we can work with and then, then, you know, have a sense of, uh, of when it's time to say enough. And then see the changing nature of that moment, too. Watch the tendency to create somebody who just didn't have the guts to go for the goal. (laughs) And then that thought of, oh, I'm someone who doesn't have the guts to really do it. Can we see that a thought arise and cease? Taking us back to the moment, back to the spaciousness, back to the present. And then sometimes it is the situation where there's opportunity to work a little more consciously with staying with the difficult so that we can really sense the perfection of this moment because to the extent that we still believe that nibbana and happiness and security is just moving away we just take birth in something which is nice then as that changes we'll keep feeling despair so to find our own balance with this reflection of nibbana is always here and now 
the timeless peace that the Buddha taught is, is always here and now. So where could the Buddha be with the fatigue, with the happiness, with the unhappiness, with the state that we have? Can we sense how we generate dukkha by wishing it was otherwise? Can we sense the spaciousness and peace that comes from acknowledging how it is? This experience in our practice of sensing the perfection of the moment is not the end of the past, but it's a very important, very important insight to get that feeling of that which is at the heart of things. And there's very much, as we'll be looking as the retreat unfolds, very much, it's not just a question of renouncing every desire and just becoming a stone wall. There are important moments in learning how to deeply let go so that we can feel the basis, the suchness of how things are. But there's also a place of looking at how we respond to life to try to alleviate suffering, to try to do it the best that we can. But we can't talk about everything at the same time. And I do, I do feel that this activity of learning how to relax in the midst of the difficult, how to sense the perfection in the midst of the difficult is a very significant one. So I, I encourage us to, to not be intimidated by that, but to little by little stretch, little by little allow this burning away of all these false notions about what we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.